Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today's guest is actor, producer, and filmmaker Paul Feig, who is behind such films as Bridesmaids, Spy, and Ghostbusters. He also created the series Freaks and Geeks, for which he was nominated for two Emmy Awards as a writer. Paul has also directed episodes for shows like The Office, for which he was nominated for another two Emmy Awards, as well as Arrested Development, Weeds, 30 Rock, Mad Men, Nurse Jackie, among others. Paul is an avid gin aficionado and even has his own gin, Ardingstall's Brilliant London Dry Gin. We discuss it, his wonderful Instagram show, Quarantine Cocktail Time, as well as his films and career. I should note that this interview was recorded at the beginning of October. Well, and there's so much to talk to you about. And um, I would say, I, I want to start with, <laughs> with the way you dress, because anytime I see pictures of you, even during quarantine times, you are wonderfully dressed in tailored coats, suits, ties, smoking jackets. But I've never seen you in an ascot. What are your thoughts on ascots? Well, if you go and watch, <laughs> if you go and watch one of my episodes of uh, Quarantine Cocktail Time on my uh, Instagram feed, I actually wore an ascot a couple of times. Um, no, I'm, I'm a, well, here's the thing. It's not ascots I don't like, but I like cravats. And uh, what's the difference? Ah. You know, the, 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 the ascot is that kind of frying pan looking thing, you know, that has the kind of, it's kind of what, it's big in the front and then it's got this sort of, you know, wrinkled thing that goes around your neck. But that's always kind of fakey. Like a, a great cravat is like a giant silk, square silk that then you roll up and then you tie like a tie around your neck, but then you tuck it in. Or sometimes you can leave it out if you're in a 60s kind of mood. Um, and I like that. I like that look. But it's a very specific look. And I've seen some younger guys pull it off. I mean, I remember Harry Styles was did it at some point. I was going like, yes, see, you can do it. But you almost, <laughs> you almost need somebody young and younger and cooler to help you bring it back because, you know, I'm just a guy in his late 50s who can go like, okay, well, there's another old, old guy walking around. Well, and I'm like, a, I used to be an actor, character actor, and I know if I would wear one, it's just, I just look, I look stupid. And that's why <laughs> you get one as a costume. You're like, well, this guy is like a stupid looking whatever. And <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm wondering, is there also like something that, that helps you get through all these times by dressing up and, and doing this? And we'll talk about your uh, quarantine stuff in a second here. My whole thing is like, if you're doing anything in the public eye, you know, we're so lucky to be in the business that we are and have this platform it's it just shows respect it, but it's why i wear a suit and tie on the set or whenever i'm working not even only just on the set when i'm directing but in pre-production and post-production when i'm in the editing room you know it's my job i'm the captain i i should dress up and if i just kind of look like the guy who could barely pull it together to you know hike up his sweatpants and then go in you know into the <laughs> office unshaven you know then it's like well what am i a, a hobo or something like <laughs> what am i saying to the world you know so i don't know i, I think it just comes from from a, a respect that i have for the people that i work with and also just i like the old 
look of those behind the scenes photos from Hitchcock and John Ford and, you know, Howard Hawks mm-hmm. and everybody, you know, and they're all wearing ties. You even see the crew is wearing like ties and, you know, nice pants and <laughs> hats and stuff. And you go like, yeah, I, when I watch a movie, I go like, I want to think that's who made the movie. I don't like the image of watching my favorite movie and going like, I bet they're all like, you know, torn t-shirts and beards and, you know, just like they hadn't showered in days. It's like, that's not a fun way to think about movies for me. I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a glamour, I'm a glamour of Hollywood guy. That's how a director should look. Yeah, I get that. Now I still, as uh, I'm talking to a director of some of the best comedies in the past 10 years, and I want to ask the obvious question on everyone's mind, which is you have a brand of gin named after you. <laughs> well, uh, it's named after my mother, actually. It's named after mm. my, my mom's uh, um, maiden name. It's called Artingstalls. But no, I, I, I am a gin fanatic and I'm a cocktail fanatic and, and love adult life and grown up life of cocktail culture and, and all that. And so, you know, I've been trying to get a gin made for 10 years and just couldn't find anybody to partner with me. And I'm clearly not the guy who's going to like buy a still and you know, figure out how to, how to, you know, put botanicals into ethanol. So, um, you know, so it took a while to find somebody who wanted to do it, but I was lucky enough to find this company called Minhas Distillery and Brewery, uh, who are out of Canada, out of Calgary, and it's a brother and sister, family owned, and they grew their beer business into like their, the seventh largest brewer and distributor of beer in North America, but they were also doing Mm. spirits, uh, more kind of well spirits and, you know, like sort of uh, off-brand stuff for um, Trader Joe's and all that. But they were right at the time I, we connected, they were wanting to do a premium gin. And so, and they saw how serious I am about it. Not just somebody wanted to put his name on it because my name doesn't really mean anything. So, you know, that's when I tried to get like in a, a gin. I told my agents like, you know, can you get me a gin? And they're like, it's impossible because nobody really knows who you are. I mean, you know, movie, you know, comedy people might kind of know you, but, um, you know, you're not, you know, a famous rock star or actors or something like that. So, you know, we had to work extra hard to find somebody who just cared about gin the way that I cared about it. Well, and, and the full name is, it's, I'm going to tell me if I get this right. It's Arding Stahl's Brilliant London Dry Gin. That's it. You got it right. Yes. Um, yeah. In, in a way, it kind of reminds me, of, <laughs> please take this the right way, of like Coppola and his wines. Like, yeah. I, I just feel like that's another director thing you do is you have a business in alcohol <laughs> that brings <laughs> you money so you can make your films, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's – you'd, you'd be crazy going into it if you thought you were going to make money off of it. You hope that it'll take mm. off. But honestly, and, and this – you know, people will probably raise an eyebrow when I say this. But I, I didn't really get into this going like, oh, we're going to make a ton of money. I, it was something I was passionate about and I'm a real work hard, play hard kind of guy. You know, I, when I make a movie, when I'm working, like we work our asses off up until we stop. And then once we stop, then it's like, now the reward is I'm going to have a martini. I'm going to have a nice dinner. I'm going to have a bottle of wine, you know, whatever it is. And so I just wanted to carry that forward. Also the fact that I just, I love gin so much and had never really found the gin that I thought was the one, the the perfect gin that I would like to drink. 
I found ones that I liked, but never one that had everything. So, so now I got my own. So at least I get free gin from the company. <laughs> that, that's the reward, honestly. <laughs> well, it's uh, I'd say uh, not quite a reward, but uh, the gin has won awards uh, according yeah. to the website, which is kind of cool. But I, I want to go back to a, a step back. Like, to you, what makes a good gin? What were you looking for that others lacked? And how do you tell someone, hey, make this gin that's like the way I want it? How does that work? The majority of the people you say, oh, you like gin, they'll go, oh, no, I don't like gin. I hate gin. Because everybody had a bad experience at some point in their life with traditional gin, you know, like a mm-hmm. beef eater or something, which is very super piney, super juniper forward. So it just, it, you know, it just hits you in the in the nose. I, I I like those kind. I really grew to like those because a real martini is made with gin. It's not made with vodka. So I really, you know, when I was getting into cocktail culture, said I've got to learn to love gin and did. But at the same time, I didn't think gin needed to be that challenging. And so then, you know, as I've traveled the world over the years, I just become a, like a gin archaeologist or something and try every gin I can find and go like, oh, this, wow, this is cool. Like in Spain, they have these savory gins, you know, and over here they got more citrus and they've got these ones that are dry and these ones that are sweet. And there's an endless, endless amount of things you can do to gin because it's all about this mix of botanicals. So it's, it's literally infinite what you can do. And if I can get super technical about gin. Please, please. You know, gin is basically, it's sort of infused vodka if, if I really boil it down to the, you know, to its core. Um, because basically what you're doing, you're taking, you know, ethanol. Ours is, ours is barley based, but there's other kinds, you know, you talk about uh, vodka. It could be you know, potato or you know, a million different things can make that. But once you have that base spirit, it's all about this thing called the basket, which looks like a big tea bag, basically metal tea bag. And it's, they stack in various botanicals into this basket. It's all about what order you stack them in, how much of each one you put in, and then you drop it in, in the still, you drop it into the, into the, you know, ethanol and it, 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 you know, brews, it distills. So it's almost like making tea, you know, (laughs) and then that goes through the distillation process a few times, but that's what gives it its flavor. Then I, you know, sit there and and try all eight of these and go like, oh, that one's not right at all. This one's close. This one, let's take this element of this, let this one over here, let's take a little bit of that. And then they go away again and do another eight varietals that are even closer together. And then we do that, you know, several times, and oh my goodness. Yeah, then you work your way to the last tasting is eight micro variations. I mean, <laughs> and I've never been as drunk in my life as the day I had to finalize the recipe because it's so close and you're just going like, wait, okay, try that. Okay, well, this one, so you're, I mean, literally, it's I, I think I drank probably like a whole bottle of gin just because also then once you find the one that you say, this is it, then it's like, okay, now we need to test it as a dirty martini. Well, let's test it as a martini with a twist. Let's test it in a Negroni. Let's test it in a Tom Collins. You know, and so to make sure that it, it, it's going to work, because I want an all-purpose gin. I mean, if, if I had to pick one thing that I wanted my gin to be great in, it would be a martini, but I didn't want to just make that. So for people who don't have a podcast who want to learn some of these cocktails, talk. let's talk about this quarantine cocktail. You've done over 100 episodes of them on Instagram. How did you come up with this and what are some of your favorite reactions you've gotten from doing this? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was at the beginning of quarantine. I was off in North Carolina and we were shooting a TV pilot that I had to pull the plug on because, you know, it just didn't feel safe. And so came back to LA in in like mid-March 
and I remember just going like, well, I can either just kind of, you know, get a lot of work done during this quarantine, which is probably going to go for a while or, but I wanted to help out, but I'm not a medical professional. So beyond, you know, donating a lot of money to, to various causes that to, to help out, I felt kind of powerless and I was like, well, I'm a comedy guy, so what do I do? It's like, well, I'll try to entertain the troops, I guess. You know, and, and um, I'd always loved mixology, but I hadn't, I hadn't, like, done all the things I wanted to do, which is I've always wanted to just go through cocktail books and just try to make everything. <laughs> and so I thought, well, this would be great. I, what I can do is I can go on and be the, my normal dopey self and try to make people laugh. I can raise money for a different charity every day and I'll experiment. We'll make a cocktail together every day that I'll find and, and try out. Um, and it was just fun. I mean, it just, we got kind of a great reaction and we got a loyal, loyal group of people that were watching every single day and became very kind of just reliant on having fun with us. Um, you know, and I had moments of, of guilt of like, oh, are we just, are we being too flip while there's so many, so, you know, it's, it's such a terrible thing mm -hmm. we're going through and people are dying. And it's just like, I never wanted it to be looked at like, oh, we're just sort of fiddling while Rome burns. But, you know, again, I, everybody took it in the right spirit, especially since we were raising money for charities, but just like, it was just a nice 15 minute break of not watching the news and just going like, oh God, everything's horrible. You know, so we did it for a hundred days in a row. And as we were approaching a hundred, I didn't know how long I was going to go with it. But as we were approaching a hundred, it was just, I was starting to fall behind so badly on other work because it did take a while kind of each day to put the show together. Um, so we, we got it down. Now we do it about once a week, sometimes once a week and a half. But I miss, I miss doing it every day. If I didn't have so much work that I had <laughs> had to get through to actually make a paycheck, uh, I would, I would still be doing it every day. Our show's called uh, I'm So Obsessed, and I'm wondering, Paul, what are you currently obsessed with? <laughs> um, beyond cocktails, um, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just obsessed with old movies. Mm. You know, I, I always did love old movies, but only kind of to augment all the movies that I watched. Just such a wonderful escape watching old black and white movies from the 30s, because everything's kind of, they're playing into this sort of, you know, post- depression glamour and you know coming out of um, prohibition and so there's lots of drinking <laughs> and you know <laughs> these supper clubs where people are going in tuxedos and gowns and having pithy hilarious sort of interactions and conversations and there's you know sometimes there's a mystery or a crime to be solved but it's total absolute escapism and you just feel so good because you know again you, you can only watch the news so much and it's just nice to like turn it off for an hour and a half and go like, oh, we're in a different world. And it's also it's weirdly um, quarantine porn because like watching supper clubs filled with people elbow to elbow <laughs> dancing, you know, and kissing and stuff. And you're just like, yeah, it, it, it was at the beginning of quarantine. It, it, you have these moments where you're like, like almost like gasp when you see like people in a room together, you know, unmasked. <laughs> you know, it's like, wait, what are you people doing? Like separate. And it's like, oh, wait, that was between pandemics back then. So, uh, between pandemics. <laughs> yeah. So well, it was I really think, fun. Uh, 
So people might be surprised to know that you're not only into Jen, but you also direct and write and act in movies. Um, and I have a couple questions I want to try to get out. I was just in Chicago, and obviously, uh, probably one of the best movies you're well known for is Bridesmaids. Mm-hmm. And I know you've talked about the scene a lot, but I just want to ask you about uh, an angle on it, which is the food poisoning scene that caps off with Maya Rudolph in a wedding gown, <laughs> literally the street. Yes. Um, I'm wondering, when you're reading that in a script, how did you approach directing that scene? And how did you find like the builds of tension to the literal explosions that were happening in the scene? <laughs> well, I mean, that scene came about during our rewrites uh, because originally it was a different scene. It was um, where, you know, Kristen's character just doesn't have any money and she's kind of fantasizing about what it would be like to have Helen's life. And she goes into this dressing room and tries on this fancy dress and loves herself so much in it. She kind of has this fantasy about what her life would be like, you know, in that dress. It was very, very funny. Uh, you know, they wrote it really, really funny, but just, we kind of were like, like, I don't know, is it, is that the right thing? Like we really need an inciting incident. And so basically, you know, what, what I, I love to do in, in movies is there's a, the stories have to be real and the character motivations have to be real. But then when you, need to illustrate a point if you can illustrate it in the biggest most outrageous way possible and still keep it real then that's that's makes a great comedy you know and so what we knew we needed out of the scene was here's Kristen had annie has no money she's up against this this other woman who's got a ton of money fighting for the heart of her best friend and so she is going to try to compete by taking them to a restaurant that she says is great but is actually but it's cheap so she can buy everybody lunch. So then she, by doing that, has screwed up and given everybody food poisoning. So the, <laughs> the joke is not now everybody's sick. The joke is she did this and she will not admit that she did it in the face of overwhelming evidence that mm-hmm. she did it. I don't think that scene would be funny if it was just sort of like a bunch of rich people got together and, and they got food poisoning. Oh, no, they're falling apart. You know all over the place and vomiting then you do this like okay that's just mayhem versus what's funny is always going back to Kristen going like I feel fine I feel fine there's nothing wrong with the food the food is fine (laughs) and then there people are throwing up and they're in sinks you know and everything's mayhem is happening and she's sweating and you know and there she is looking at her adversary saying like there's nothing wrong with me I am absolutely (laughs) fine that's what makes that scene funny you know so this was like all right, we're going to just kind of have this real life. <laughs> if everything fell apart all at once, what would happen? Embarrass uh, Becca, our producer here, but she's not only a big fan of yours like I am, but uh, yeah. she absolutely loves you in the movie Heavyweights. So. Ah, there you go. Oh, my goodness. No, I, it's, it's amazing to me that that movie, it, it's so funny when you, as you get older, um, things you did that were just so unsuccessful at the time, you go like, oh, well, and then then you suddenly get this information that it actually has, has found a home somewhere. Because uh, that was, I mean, it was a huge disappointment for us when we first did it, because we thought it was so funny, and then it just cratered at the, at the box office. So, yeah, I mean, that's honestly... Goonies, you know, I, when I was in film school, we went to the set of Goonies, that big with the ship and all that stuff. And uh, we were like, wow, this looks so cool. And I remember it coming out. I don't think it did that well. And I also remember it getting terrible reviews. And now it's, you know, this beloved, gigantic thing. So, yeah, that was my generation where I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. And you're like, what do you mean people didn't like Goonies? <laughs> yeah, I know. That was the same way when I was a kid watching TV that that would, um, you know, you'd have a show. There's a show that Mel Brooks did. Um, called When Things Were Rotten, 
It was like a takeoff. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, it was a takeoff on Robin Hood, and we thought it was the funniest thing ever. And it turned out it was like one of these like infamous TV disasters that nobody watched and lost all this money. And you know, back in Michigan, you're just going like, "Oh, this show's really funny. Let's watch it next week." It's like, "Where'd it go? Why'd they take it off?" That's how there's like a lot of things like that. I mean, I mean, obviously, I mean, you have freaks and geeks. I grew up in that. I feel like you also like there's people like Monty Python and how like that they were surprised that there was a huge American following of their of yeah. uh, flying circus and stuff. So it's like interesting because there's, I don't know, you find those fans and those fans stick to it. And that's almost better than ratings at the time. Though ratings would help keep the show on the air. <laughs> yeah. You know what it is? It's, I always, I always say it's this. I say people have to get used to the, used to the idea that something exists. And that's a huge hurdle for people, especially if you have a body of work on top of it, that where they think they know what is coming from you. And so they're like, oh, good, it's going to be one of those. And then if it's not exactly what they thought it is, they're so challenged by it that they can't kind of have a pure reaction to it. You know, I've had that happen with a lot of stuff that I do where people don't like it when it first comes out or whatever. And then, you know, a couple of years later, like, Hey, you know what? I saw that again on cable and it's actually really good, you know, because <laughs> then they sort of knew the tone to expect and knew it was coming. You know, I mean, the actually a perfect example of that was when we did the dinner party episode of the office uh, mm. It was just universally hated by the fans. <laughs> I mean, they I made everybody so uncomfortable that they were just like, "Oh, how can you?" I remember the day after we were so excited with, about the the show, the episode, and then thinking, "Oh, we're going to get this great feedback." And the next day, it was just like, "Oh, I hated that. How dare you?" Blah 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 blah. blah. You know, now it keeps getting voted as like the best episode of all time you know, of, of that show, and it, it's just because once you know what's coming, then you can go like, "Okay, now I can just kind of enjoy the madness." No, and also it's funny because it's the office. <laughs> you know, yeah. like how controversial could it really be? Oh, I know. You'd be surprised. I mean, people really. I remember Freaks and Geeks. Some of our fans got so angry with us because of the episode that had a lot of Billy Joel music, <laughs> and they were very anti that. And that really took offense that we did that. I remember that episode, and I think I was one of those offended. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you take your chances. And I've heard you say in other interviews that you're really good at making talented people look better with their performances mm -hmm. and getting the best out of them. I wonder if you can explain that and even give an example of how, how, how that happens. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it came from when I was an actor, and I would just observe how I was being directed and I would observe, observe how people I knew were being directed. And then I, also by going to see movies with people in it that I know are good and you go like, oh, that's not a very good performance, <laughs> you know, and I, you completely fault the director for that because they're just not getting something or they're not capturing it right. And a lot of times it's how it's, you're capturing something like somebody could be giving a great performance. And if you're too far away or you're too close with your camera, it just, it makes it wrong because, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of not serving your actor well because you're not protecting them. You know, you're, you're not kind of seeing what size, what level they're doing this at, or you're not properly uh, relaying to them how close or how far away you are. You know, if, if I'm in really close on, on, a, on a close, you know, shot, like a big close up, and I don't let the person know I'm going in very tight, they could be playing slightly bigger because they think the camera's far further away. And they're kind of screwed because then they've, they've sort of miscalculated the size of their performance for that moment. So, you know, so that's one aspect of it. And then it's also just the ability to find the right role for the right person 
and that is either the perfect role for them or that is the completely unexpected role for them that is perfect for them, but nobody knows that it's perfect for them. You know, when I look at Jason Statham in, in Spy, you know, I mean, yes. you know, being able to yes. trade on what everybody knows about Jason and then have fun with it, but <laughs> make him play it dead serious you know, which he did, and he's so brilliant doing it because even when he first came in for the when we were doing the first, just kind of reading through the script, remember, you know, just one on one, he was like, "Should I try to be funny?" I said, "Like Jason, you treat this like this is the most serious movie you ever made in your life," and he's like, "Oh yeah, I get it, I get it." <laughs> and so then everything he said was hilarious because he was so just playing it so seriously, you know. So that, and then Chris Hemsworth getting the chance, you know, I had lunch with Chris, and I go like, "Chris is really funny. Like, why doesn't Chris get to be funnier?" And, and just going like let's just make him funny and then it really working with him he he wasn't even supposed to be kind of the dumb guy when we first you know cast him and stuff it was just gonna be he was kind of be this sort of like slacker kind of who just didn't take the job seriously and then as we're working you know being on the set he just started kind of leaning into this this dumb thing and we just found it so funny that we started writing towards it and it turned out he's this brilliant <laughs> dumb guy who's you know one of the smartest guys i know you know, so that that is the thing where then I go like, oh, cool, I get to break people's expectations and show them a side of a person that they had no idea existed. Well, the and the other question actually kind of ties to that movie Chris Hemsworth was in, which was Ghostbusters. And I, I, I liked that movie quite a bit. And I think actually a lot of people did. But when it came out, it, it was also a, a point of controversy that there were women playing Ghostbusters. And I'm wondering, it's been four years. And I'm wondering, what do you think of that controversy now? And what was it like going through it when it happened? Well, I think the same thing about it I, now as I thought about it back then, which it's really stupid. <laughs> it was a really, <laughs> really stupid controversy. It just shows you sort of like how people can get obsessed about stuff that really isn't that important. But, you know, we're all very, very um, religious about our pop culture and the stuff we love. And so I res- totally respect that. But, um, you know, but beyond that, it was just such a it was just a dumb controversy. You know, I made this movie because like uh, all I do is work with funny women. They wanted me to make a Ghostbusters movie. I was like, well, how will I do it? So I don't step on the legacy of the other one. It's like, Oh, I know how to do it. I, all these funny women I work with, let's make, you know, let's make them the Ghostbusters. That was it. That was the only map mm-hmm. that went into it. And so when suddenly everybody hair was on fire, you, you get caught up in it and you kind of go like, Oh my God. But you also step back and go like, this is so stupid. I mean, this is a movie about people fighting ghosts. Like, really? (laughs) We're going to get this upset where I'm getting death threats about that? Like, okay, there's a whole other thing going on that that, that is beyond this movie (laughs) that there's a problem going on here. But um, no, I I just find it silly. And uh, I'm very proud of the film. And, and, you know, it's, it's gotten so many fans over the years. And, you know, the greatest moment of my life was when we, uh, for that movie, was when after all that controversy, we won the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Award for favorite movie of the year and beat, you know, Captain America and Star Wars and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, so I guess I didn't ruin current children's childhoods, even though I apparently ruined (laughs) the childhoods of a bunch of middle-aged men. (laughs) Well, in a specific kind, I think, of middle-aged men. Yeah, well, there you go. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, I have a thing called Pick One, and I think this allows to hit a lot of topics pretty quick. And I give you a couple things, you choose one. It doesn't mean one is better than the other, and you're encouraged to talk it out. So I'd like okay. to play Pick One with you, Paul, if that's okay. You got it. All right, the first one, I think it's easy. Actor or director? Uh, director. How come? Uh, I love using all my skill sets, and I was an actor for a long time. But I probably do as much acting as a director <laughs> as I ever did as an as an actor because I'm dealing with studios, I'm dealing with producers, I'm dealing with, you know, everybody, I'm dealing with my cast, I'm dealing with crew, and I like playing the role of a director. <laughs> um, and I get to affect the final product, whereas as an actor, you're just at the mercy of the director and all the other people. So um, so I, I, I just get just a lot of satisfaction out of it. All right, this next one is, is just probably the hardest one. Yeah. Playing Ron on The Facts of Life, <laughs> playing Norman Bryant on Dirty Dancing, the TV series, or playing Tim in Heavyweights. Oh, my God. Uh, you are hilarious that you dug all that up. Um, <laughs> Tim and Heavyweights. Tim and Heavyweights, because the other two roles were so terrible. Um, my Facts of Life role was just awful uh <laughs> i because you know and, and i and I, I i fault them i fault them on the show for this because it was oh my god it was the one of the worst experiences i ever had not everybody was very nice so let's just put that out there i really liked everybody involved but it was a episode about rating guys basically where this was when you know tens <laughs> one to ten was really like the big thing in pop culture and so the girls decide they're gonna have a party and they're gonna invite a bunch of tens but you know and they're gonna rate them but who shows up at the party a couple of twos and guess who was one of those twos it was me <laughs> and and they made the decision to make myself and the other poor guy who did it with me into nerds but not nerds cartoon nerds so basically we were wearing propeller beanies like i mean no. like yeah like they put propeller beanies on our head and in the opens of the door like oh boy i can't wait to see who's hot they open they're like uh oh and we're like hey everybody and so that was bad enough but then you know when you do a live sitcom there's a thing called the audience warm-up person who basically, mm-hmm. you know, between scenes, they just keep the audience upbeat and laughing and all that. It's usually a stand-up comedian that does it. And so this woman was the was the uh, the, the audience warm-up. And so they go, okay, uh, we need to fix a few things with the lights. Everybody just, you know. So as they're standing there, she goes like, well, I don't know. Come on, ladies in the audience. Let's, let's rate these guys. Let's do it. <laughs> and I was like, are you f- kidding me and i walked off that set it's like all i could see was like what about the guy at the door and the propeller you know like so and i was just like never again am i gonna play a role (laughs) okay i got two more for you melissa mccarthy in bridesmaids or melissa in spy oh that's a tough one um i gotta go with spy uh you know why because i the whole reason I wrote that movie, and I did not write that movie for Melissa. That, that's <laughs> interestingly, I actually wrote it for somebody else because Melissa wasn't available when I was writing it, but then she got a hold of it and loved it. But it was, I was doing the same thing for the other person I was writing for, which is basically going like, oh, you think you know this person? I actually want to show you the person that I really know. And both the people I was writing for are really nice people in real life who play these extreme characters. And so, you know, I, I feel very close to that role because that role is very close to who Melissa is. 
but then she gets to turn into the Melissa that we all know and love from, you know, some of the earlier movies that she did with me. So, uh, yeah, so I just think it's, it's a real tour de force, but you know, that said, I mean, my God, her playing Megan and bridesmaids, you know, look, she got nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> Well, and I know we talked about Freaks and Geeks a little bit, but I just want to say it's been 21 years, uh, I think, since it came out. And what does it mean to you today that, I mean, I'm talking about it. I know people bring it up to you all the time. And it was just one season. And sadly, it was just one season. But what does it mean to you today that it's still something that we want to talk about? I mean, I love it. This is what you dream of and hope will happen when you make anything uh, for, for, you know, for entertainment or pop culture, if you will. So it's a thrill, but it's one of the reasons why I wanted it when I, you know, we made the movie, the, the, the show in 1999-2000, and it took place in 1980. And that's when we were, when I wrote it and when we were going out to, to get somebody to do it, my biggest concern was they were going to go, you have to make a modern day. Because I just didn't want that. I wanted it to be timeless even when it came on. A timeless is a very heavy word. I just wanted it to be out of time, you know, so that it was in a world that didn't have technology, like, you know, cell phones and the internet and all the stuff that, that keeps us kind of apart and from having face-to-face conversations and interactions and, and conflicts and all that. And, and so because of that, you know, I also just wanted it to be about sort of the human condition when you are in your teens. Uh, and not be so focused on current pop culture because that, again, that just ages really poorly. So so I think all that, but I, I really do think we've stood the test of time, thank God, because these performers were so good. We had such, you know, amazing uh, writers on it, including myself. I'll, I'll pat myself on the back. And, 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 <laughs> and, and, you know, and we were just telling timeless stories about, how hard it is to be a teenager and the things that affect teenagers today affected them 40 years ago, affected them a hundred years ago, you know, cause it's all based on, you know, your DNA and your, your um, biology at that moment and, and how you process things at that age. And the only thing that changes around you is the cultural landscape around you, but the, the internal feelings of your body and your brain at that point are very consistent. And so I think, you know, an audience can watch it today and just completely you know, feel in tune with what these characters are going through and not go like, oh, that's something from, you know, from people didn't care. People don't care about that now. You know, like 40 years ago, they cared. They were, they were afraid to do this or that, or they were awkward, about, mm-hmm. awkward, you know, but now we're not awkward anymore. It's like, no, everybody's still awkward. <laughs> well, and there's like a, there's a commodity in that awkwardness. And I think that was part of what made it so enjoyable or even going back to uh, like the UK office. That's the yeah. awkwardness is kind of what made that show work so well that it spun off into what became an American version, which got its own identity. after. Yeah. Well, and also we, or I should say society grew into our awkwardness um, mm. because mm. it's one of the reasons why we got canceled is that a lot of people at the time, just didn't want to be confronted with that cringy uh, of a of a show because it can get very cringy. But to me, I think that's the greatest kind of comedy and storytelling there is because it's forcing you to have this visceral experience on something you've similar to something you've gone through. But you know, I remember just going, "Who wouldn't love 
seeing the worst moments of their high school teen, teen life, <laughs> watching it from a safe distance and much of the same way why you like a horror movie. That's why you like a horror movie because you are yeah. sitting at a safe distance watching something terrible happen and you can have the thrill of it, but it's not you. It's very impersonal and you get to just have the cathartic release of that. And so who would have thought that it, it would hit people so hard? But, you know, in the years since, that kind of comedy's gotten much more popular be and popular is the wrong word more kind of accepted because i think it's because of youtube and the fact that we started getting all our entertainment from watching videos of real people caught in the moment or doing something weird or trying to be doing something weird and it became very behavioral and I think right now, everybody just wants to process life much more behaviorally in a way that they go like, yeah, that's how I would do it. But, you know, tomorrow, the biggest, broadest, over the top, you know, one dimensional comedy could come roaring back and people go like, now nah, we want that. Now we want that. And we don't want all this like you know, <laughs> sort of more behavioral cringy stuff. So, you know, the, the, the minute you as a person in comedy say, don't tell me what's funny. I know. Then you set the clock on the end of your career because, you know, <laughs> you go, don't tell me what's funny, kids. You know, I've been doing this for 50 years. It's like, yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> see you, old man. I want to thank Paul for chatting with me. And I want to thank you for listening. You can follow Paul on his Instagram at Paul Feig. And you can learn more about Artingstall's brilliant London dry gin at artingstallsgin.com. If you enjoyed this interview, take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And if you really like this episode, please rate it. Until next time, take care.